Good evening and welcome to RPG Coast to Coast. I'm Andrew Ragland from FASA Games. Yes, that FASA. Let's make the joke early. Get it out of the way. I'm line developer for 1879, which is a steampunk role-playing game, uses the same mechanic and is in the same world as Earthdawn. Uh, kind of replaces Shadowrun in our cosmology. Okay. Uh, QDOS. Sure. Uh, with that, I'm Brian I'm from Lost Relic Industries. Um, we work on Swords and Shaman of Songard, which is a uh, tabletop RPG. It's set in sort of a uh, prehistoric and Bronze Age fantasy setting. So, yeah, if you like mammoths and saber-toothed cats and um, cave elves, uh, check us out. Hi, uh, my name is Mark. I am uh, also known as VB on uh, Discord and other places. Uh, I have my Elthos system, uh, which is uh, both an RPG and a web application that supports it. And uh, it's basically geared towards games masters who want to create their own worlds. And uh, it's uh, kind of a fabulous thing. Um, you should definitely check that out at uh, elthos.com if you, if you want to check it out. I, uh, I wandered onto the internet and I haven't been able to get out. I don't know where I am or what I'm doing here. My name is Courtney Campbell, and I write the blog Hack and Slash. I'm a full-time writer-illustrator. My stream on Twitch is Agonark Artist. My name's Dino, uh, and I'm here representing the World Building Magazine, your one-stop shop for building worlds for stories or RPGs. All righty. Fantastic. Uh, Pex, can we have the topic list, please? You can, indeed. Do, do, do. Let's see. Okay. Well, since I'm leading off in the marching order, um... I'm just going to go with the first one, metagaming and why it is not a problem. <clears throat> is not. And why it is not a problem. And by metagaming, um, I think we all agree, right, that uh, we're talking about people playing the system as well as the character in the game world. You know, yeah, I... I, I I had some specific things to talk about it. I mean, fundamentally, I think when a lot of people try to address metagaming, they're entering a realm where you're deciding what other people should do because that's what you want them to do, which is a really weird position to take when you're playing a game with peers, right? Like, I, I don't, I don't require that other people do whatever I think they should do in order to you know, spend time with me. And then the other thing is that, like, if you look at the rule sets for D and D, I don't even think it's mentioned in the core books until maybe fifth edition, fifth edition has it, maybe something in second edition. But the general idea is that, you know, you're all playing together to find out the results of what's happening in this fantasy realm. And one group isn't trying to win over the other. And so when somebody's engaging in metagaming, 
like the advice fifth edition gives is just remind them they're there to find out, you know, what happens and not uh, try and win. Right. It's an oppositional play style. If you're worried about metagaming, I think. I, 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 I actually totally agree with you, but on the sense of, I think people tend to misclassify what metagaming is. Like people talking over the table during combat, I, I personally don't see that as metagaming. I see that more as them actually trying to think strategically for once. Gaming? And, yeah. And on the other hand, though, I think metagaming that's malicious comes in two forms. The worst of which, in my opinion, is the metagaming of someone trying to tell someone else how to play their character. And then the other is someone in a separated situation using knowledge of another person. Like when you split the party, essentially, party A does something and party B hasn't learned yet and uses that knowledge to their advantage. Like, oh, we have 20,000 gold now. It's just a simple example. Well, I I just, the whole concept of malicious, like that's just inappropriate group behavior. I don't really think it's like, oh, they're doing something in the game. How can we address that? It's like, whoa, dude. Oh, I, I precisely agree with you. I think that people who get upset over it, it, it I, I think that you need to work through something and kind of discuss your ideas to what information can be shared. But at the same time, you're trying to have a communal experience. Sure, sure. It's uh, it, it's sort of a, a shared agreement about what's uh, appropriate at the table, I think. Um, and, you know, from a designer perspective, you know, if you put a rule in there, you're, you know, you better be prepared to live with it. You know, the consequences of that, right? Because people are going to do, you know, we were literally just having a conversation over here about um, what happens when certain things scale. You know, some people are going to go max and some people aren't going to care to go max. Uh, and, and what kind of disparity does that build? Uh, and does it matter? Um, and so I think that um, <clears throat> I prefer to have people not worry as much about the metagame uh, and be able to focus on their character. Uh, but that's not why everybody plays a game. And I think there's a certain point where um, it's like when you, you know, like it, when I was a kid, you know, you're watching your little sister and she's got one of your GI Joe toys and GI Joe is having tea with, you know, strawberry shortcake. And you say, Hey, you're doing it wrong. Well, you know, she's having fun, you know? So uh, I don't know that that's necessarily doing it wrong. Yeah. I'd be, you know, my concern is that is with in-character and out-of-character knowledge. Um, I've heard the term metagaming used directly to refer to what the players know versus what the characters know. And we've already touched on that. A couple of people have. Of, oh, we have 20,000 gold pieces now. Um, you know, if you've got a... Per, a player who's pl uh, brought in a brand new first first level character, and you trot out some critter, and they sit and oh yeah, they know all the statistics on that critter, dude. Can you at least make an effort to try and play a newbie? I mean, come on. You know, I, I'll, uh, I've seen peer pressure on that. The the GM doesn't necessarily have to even do anything, where the other players are like. Dude, we're all supposed to be newbies at this. Could we at least try to pretend a little? You know, it's kind of what the game is about—is pretending. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the, it, the the goal isn't to win. Like that's not what anybody's doing when we're playing D anD. d We're trying to find out what happened in this other place. 
Yeah, you know, you know play the story uh, instead of trying to be the, the one who, who jumps ahead. Uh, you know, read, read through the chapters in order at least. You know, qu quit trying to skip to the back of the book. The, the individuals who complain about metagaming, though, to me, it seems like the reason they're talking about it is because they're tyrants. Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think that I, I think that in some I'm cases, Did, uh, I just misheard that. Did you say tired or tyrant? Tyrant, like like yeah, yeah, okay. Got they they but, secretly but, dream in their hearts to be lord over all men. Like they're very. Hmm. I think. Sorry, Dan. You power gamers. That's all right. Um, I guess. Um, no, I I don't I don't think that uh, you know just discussing the metagame and whether it's appropriate sometimes is necessarily tyrannical, but I do think that, you know, um, trying to, you know, t start to take away agency from people and say, no, 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 you, you, you don't have power over your decisions at the table is, is not the right approach either. Um, but I, I think bringing up the metagame and saying, well, you know, your character wouldn't have knowledge of this. Um, and that's something to consider when you choose your character's actions is, is a perfectly appropriate thing to say, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd spend, we spend most of the game trying to figure out w w what the correct thing is, right? That's the whole, I don't know. I think that's the je ne sais quoi of D and D like what, 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 what happened, right? I, uh, I think that like the, the best way that I can put out of game knowledge and in character knowledge is um, we were playing Pathfinder Society and one of my friends was playing an investigator with like 22 intelligence or something like that. And he just kind of looked at the game and he looks, look, I am not a super genius with 22 intelligence and this guy is. Can I just make an intelligence check to kind of get some help on this? And someone at the table brought up that that's metagaming. Oh, come on precisely it's like trying to use facets like that it's almost like the double standard of you can't bring anything else in but at the same time you can only put in what you have personally there's, yeah, yeah there's a I discussion can't... about that i think to be had but it doesn't involve the word metagaming i don't think right like whether or not you're you should get aid for your stats or whether that's included in the mechanical that's, situation already that's yeah i mean you example. know I don't, I don't know how to swing a sword worth a damn, but, uh, you know, I should be able to at least roll dice for my character to do it. You know. But that is an interesting example, because I've seen that played out, and I've seen different rulings on it, depending on the situation, where um, I've, I've seen a DM expecting players to come up with their own solutions to issues. And if you had a character who was average intelligence you know trying to make the argument well maybe my character can come up with an idea but then the flip side to that is is what if you you have a very intelligent character uh it's often easier to play you know if you have a high intelligence it's easier sometimes to play somebody with a low intelligence than vice versa you know well, we won't hmm. always admit it uh, here, here here's part of the thing too is that if I, you guys know dungeon the board game right like oh, yeah. if if i play dungeon the board game and i'm a wizard i head immediately to the sixth level nobody's saying well you don't know that the sixth level is over there right like we're playing a game and sure. and i feel that very similar in situations in D D. like they know that I don't need you to reverse rationalize every time you guys run into a troll, how you know to use fire. Like that's the tactical challenge there. 
And something like that, I would just call it common knowledge. Precisely. Among, among, among adventurers. Um, 1879 actually has a, a mechanic for dealing with this. Uh, it has a knowledge skill. And you specify the focus of your knowledge skill every time you take the knowledge skill. So you have knowledge or you have knowledge secrets of the aristocracy or knowledge chemistry or whatever. And this allows you to roll dice for stuff your character would know that maybe the player doesn't know. So you're, you know, you can look over to the GM and say, Hey, um, you know, is there a shortcut to get to this other part of the city ahead of our opponents? Make a London geography knowledge test. You roll well. Sure. You know, a couple of shortcuts. Sure. Presto. You're there. Well, I, I mean, I feel like that's the, the purpose of knowledge in, in most board game and most RPGs. Um, and it, it's the knowledge of how the player has is how to use them. I think is what, I think masquerades for, as it was said, tyrants. You know, you, you have to kind of hide what you want to say under the veneer of skills and checks. It's more so when you come to the end of the road where knowledge can bring you. And it's, okay, What? what can I just roll some dice? Yeah, there's, uh, you know, there's a couple of ways to do that. Um having the, the helpful NPC in the party uh, where people turn to the NPC and go, okay, we're out of ideas. Have you got anything? Or, you know, my character has this skill. Can I roll the skill and maybe uh, figure something out? Yeah, that makes per perfect sense. I mean, you're, you're I, using the tools that are in the toolbox. Right. I mean, my players look stuff up on their phones all the time. Like, you know... Uh... When there's riddles or puzzles in the game, I don't care. Well, I'm just jealous of that. I, I use the big book of <laughs> the 10 best riddles for kids, and uh, my players still don't understand them, so I'm just jealous right there. <laughs> I do like to see a little bit of, you know, the players explaining things like, hey, can I use my connection, you know, with the Academy at Erewhon? Might I know something about these runes? And you know, then we'll look at that and say, okay, let's make this roll and I'm going to give you a bonus, you know, or something, or I might just give it to them, you know, if they can make a, a good case like that. Um, I like to see that um, more than oftentimes, you know, just, hey, can I know this, you know? Um, I mean, I, th I think that actually, I play a lot of old school D&D. I think that's actually the core mechanic is somebody will go, well, how likely is it that I have a cousin in the guard? And then we talk about the right. situation, we decide on a stakes on the roll and then we make the roll and then we're like, oh, that's the truth of it, right? And that's gameplay in general, I think. And and now you've got an NPC cousin in the guard who's, you know, um, maybe a, a, a drunk or something. And, you know, it can be found, you know, face down in, a, you know, a watering trough uh, regularly on, you know, certain nights. You know, or not, depending on the die roll. Like, yeah. yeah. Shadowrun had a whole system for building contacts uh, since it's essentially a, a criminal uh, breaking and entering sort of game. There's a whole underworld thing going on with it. And so there's this whole system for, for contacts, and you actually get to uh, specify some contacts at character build. 
Um, I've seen some other games do something similar. 1879 has connections. Uh, I've seen a few other game systems where you can you you build some contacts before you even start, and that gives you seeds of ideas. You know, you look at your character sheet and go, "Oh, I know this guy who runs the shop and sells some really shady stuff out the back door. Can I go talk with him?" Just to move us into uh, the next topic, I just had one last thing to say, and that's I really wish for my topic I had chosen borrowing other mechanics from other systems to make your game mm. run smoother because I use the Shadowrun system for contacts in Pathfinder. You like crunchy games, brother. I really do. Hey, I'm, I'm with FASA. We created Shadowrun. Um, you know, crunch is, is our thing. So, yay crunch. So, who is picking our next topic? Das. Das? Yep. Does that mean? I was just going to say, let's go down the list, because we've got favorite Easter egg here. Okay. Sounds great. Or cultural reference. That nobody got. And again... <laughs> Okay. Um, has anybody here played Earth Dawn? Uh, I did in college. Okay. Yeah, like crickets chirping there for a second. Sorry, Andrew. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, I'm a fan. I, I played it a lot more than I played Earth Dawn. I don't think I could okay. ever get people to play Earth Dawn. Okay, so there's this module for Earth Dawn called Burning Desires, where you're uh, investigating a series of arsons in a predominantly orcish uh, neighborhood in a city that is run by dwarves. And so you've got a whole um, cops of one race in a neighborhood of another race uh, story being told there, plus the arsons and... Here, you're the outsiders being brought in, and the the city watch is not thrilled about you being there. Yeah, but there's a tradition of getting heroes, yada, yada. There is a whole series of alien nation references in the character names, and not one person has ever come to me and said, Dude, alien nation. I've I've been just so frustrated with that. I don't think I saw that. <laughs> oh, there was a movie. Days. It was like a buddy cop thing, except there were aliens, and the milk got the alien drunk, and then there was like a TV series, and it was all TV about series that ran for multiple seasons. It was about immigration, yeah. like kind of. It was a you know a show. It was good, I guess. Okay, it was enough popular enough a movie to spawn a TV show, huh? There was a TV show, and then when the TV show wrapped after a couple seasons, they did like three or four more uh, made-for-TV movies uh, to continue the story and wrap up uh, the uh, the storylines that were left hanging at the end of the um, of this of the TV series. So yeah, it was just, it was a fairly big deal for a number of years. It went on for a long time, and and nobody. I mean, okay. 
maybe I'm just old and I'm making references to stuff that's that's old, but you know, I did a couple of Victorian era pop culture references in the London source book and people got those. Come on. Or maybe, you know, I'm just going for such deep nerdity that, um, you know, it, it, there's only like three people in the world that would ever even get the joke. Well, I just don't have that kind of expectations for people. Like, like if they get it, that's cool. It's there for them. But I, I don't expect anybody to. People are busy and distracted. Yeah, I do a lot of conventions. I mean, just in stuff that I've run and made myself, I made Hamlet references once, like hyper overt Hamlet references, to the point where they dueled on a table and they killed everyone, and, and nobody got it. And it was a party of six people. It, people sometimes just it goes over their heads. They don't view the material beyond what's written on the page. Right. They get really absorbed in the moment and don't see that the little subtle things. Okay, maybe I've just, you know, I've got uh, more expectations than the market will bear. We had a, a bad guy in one of our campaigns. He was a, I didn't run this, was a player. And he was a manic, depressive werebear. And so he was a bipolar bear. <laughs> oh. Sorry. That's... That's awful. That, that's but, yeah, but like it was a thing, right? Like, like that's the joke, and it wasn't introduced explicitly. Like he was a character, but then, like you know, he turns into a werebear, and you're like, oh, it's a polar bear, and I'm like, oh god, dude. Like, it's funny, but played straight, right? Mm. Which, okay, I'm gonna say something really corny here. Uh, which old module was it that had the uh, Curtis in it? There was an old D&D module. Does nobody remember the Curtis? Was that Barrier Peaks? I, I want to say, yeah, right. Because he, he had, it was the the time machine that was chronically unable to reach destination in silence. Nobody remembers uh. that one. No, I don't remember that one. Barrier Peaks was the uh, the ancient crashed spaceship. Yeah, it was introduced the frog Hemoth inside. I think that's the. I, I think it was, but it, it was one of those modules that had. Uh, yeah, it had the basically the time machine that was an obvious parody of the TARDIS. Because mm. chronically unable. Right. Yeah, and and made the bad noise. Yeah, yeah. It's because he never took the parking brake off. <laughs> It's great. I wish uh, maybe it was Barrier Peaks. It has been the so S series long. was was actually punny. I mean, there were puns in there, right? Works of great. Thar was 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 a comedy piece, I think, from Astara. It was written from the perspective of the orcs. Uh, at this point, you're losing me. Um, I never made it past second edition, and that was <clears throat> years ago. 
Central Hatton. Yeah, like the the chapters were written by the orcs, so it was like dog teach players good, you know. Like and you're like okay, is uh, it was all very punny, you know. And it had who's the illustrator? Was it Easley that did those illustrations? The comedic ones for TSR, yeah. It's extremely orcist, really. Hmm. Yeah, Games Workshop used to do that a lot, too, with the Warhammer stuff. Daka Daka. Now, the worst one I ever ran into was actually in the SCA. A guy with a French persona who signed himself as Tonk Atois. If you read it uh, with an English pronunciation, of course... Mm. <laughs> okay, I think we've beaten this one. Uh, yeah. Campaign design, best and worst design strategies. Uh, that one was mine, so I guess I'll kick that one off. Um, so I had the worst campaign design idea ever, so I thought I'd start off with that and then ask you guys what yours, your experiences were. But um, I created a campaign that lasted about three years. And uh, when I conceived of it, I had been watching Dark Shadows, like from the first episode all the way through like episode 490 or something. The original. Yeah, the original. And, uh, you know, it became an obsession with this idea of trying to figure out how can I do my role-playing game with my players how can I do a soap opera style game? And, uh, you know, so, and what I mean by that was slow and deliberate long-term character development, um, you know, slowly evolving plot lines, um, you know, that kind of thing where you see that in soap operas, but you don't really see that in any other medium. Uh, and I realized, hey, you know what? Role-playing games is another medium where you could do this kind of thing. It would be really cool. And uh, so on top of that, the other thing was um, uh, Christopher Lee had just passed away. So I went to watch some of his old movies, and I found one called City of the Dead. And uh, it was a magnificent movie, you know, Christopher Lee about witches and all this stuff. So I merged those two concepts of... uh, Dark Shadows and City of the Dead, and I came up with this like convoluted plotline. And the other thing that I added to this idea of soap opera style role playing game was I'm gonna do witches. And witches, the thing that really impressed me in Dark Shadows was witches are really sneaky and they lie and they use magic and they like convert people's minds and they use charm spell and all these things. And and if you ever watch Dark Shadows, you'll You'll know what I mean, how how amazing and awesome it oh, is. Yeah. And so I ran this game, and it was a complete disaster. But it lasted for like three years or so. Uh, and my players hated it. They absolutely hated it. It was... I can't believe they stuck through something they hated for three years. Oh, yeah, I, I just want to say, too, that that story is incorrect because Christopher hey, Lee know, is like... immortal. He's immortal. He didn't die. Oh. He lives forever. 
<laughs> who, who's that? Christopher Lee. Oh, yeah, right, yeah, right. yeah, no doubt. Yeah, so anyway, so it can't be that was why, why did they do it for three years if they hated it? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. They they said they hated it, but they loved it. You know, it was one of those things like, we hate this campaign. Oh, White Wood is so no, just But they came just back. Just for like, reference, that's that's exactly how vampires suggest that you structure your campaigns. They, they suggest that you have a static environment and several key figures and the, they're in conflict, but not overtly. And so uh, it becomes very soap opera-ish because you keep having to have these scenes where characters discover new things or secrets and it runs very much like that, I think. Yeah, so it's the long form main plot that's treated like sporadic side quests, almost doing other things to kind of fill the time. Yeah. So anyway, just to cap this. So for me, I thought it was uh, I loved the campaign because it was just this saga. I mean, it was amazing, and they got really involved with the characters in the town, and you know all this stuff, and the witches, and 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 the role playing was fabulous because they really didn't know what was going on, and they expected to be able to come in and you know do the big boss fight and get out. And we thought this game was going to last five sessions, and it lasted three years. And so for me, it was great. They always said that they hated it, but they came back week after week. So, you know, in the end, they said, well, you know, we loved it, but it was just so horrible. So anyway, that was my bad game design strategy. And uh, there you have it. So how about you guys? Uh, what good game design, bad game design strategies? <laughs> I think the worst one I ever wrote, I was a uh, much younger, I was a teenager. Um, and it was just, it was awful. Um, <laughs> um, we were playing, or we were starting the cyberpunk RPG, and this was probably circa 1988, 89. Um, and uh, it was the first edition. And, you know, I, it was, it was, a challenge for me because it was so uh the idea of the setting was fairly unstructured compared to uh what i was familiar with in other games um you know call of cthulhu you had the idea that yeah hey everybody's an investigator we're investigating this paranormal unknown so that was kind of a driving thing um in other games you know uh D, D, there was always you could always throw a dungeon delve you know, into the mix somewhere or, you know, <clears throat> something to do in a town uh, with teenagers. And we were always fine. Um, you know, recon, it was always the, you know, you were scouting somewhere in Northern Vietnam, but with cyberpunk, um, I had this sort of uh, group of players that had these wildly disjointed characters that just didn't make a lot of sense. And it was very hard for me to put it together. And, I think instead of actually looking at those characters and trying to understand, you know, what it was that each of the people that played the game wanted out of it, I tried to create some kind of epic, you know, uh, science fiction story uh, about, uh, you know, some sort of circuit that had to be broken, um, you know, to free the 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 upcoming internet and so on, um, and. They, it felt, you know, like I said, it just felt really disconnected because you had a rocker boy over here who didn't really care about technology. You had a reporter that was trying to figure out what this did. 
Um, and, and so I, you know, I kind of had to admit, uh, defeat on that one. And, you know, we only got a few, few games into it. Um, but I think it was again, because I didn't, uh, quite understand how to run the game. Uh, I didn't understand how, at the time, um, how to improvise, uh, and how to take a, a game like cyberpunk and then try to figure out, okay, well, what are the motivations of my players? Um, because it's, uh, it is very open. I mean, it's, uh, I think, in terms of content. If you were going to try to run that game again, do you think that you could make it work now? Or is it like, no, the concept didn't work? I think I would literally sit down with the players um, in advance for a game like that and talk and actually just sort of get them to tell me a little bit about their characters and then start to try to to, you know, ask them, you know, okay, well, what kinds of things, you know, do we want to do? So I'd have a better idea instead of trying to create a story to mold their characters into. Um, yeah. You know, that that's correct. Like, like, like the, the thing is, is you're talking about good or bad campaign design, bad campaign design is sitting down and you thinking that, you know, what's going to happen during the game and good campaign yeah. design is when you sit down and you create a situation where you can play to find out what interesting thing happens. Like, and, and the two approaches that you described, your initial approach versus a secondary approach is that shift. It's the shift between bad design and good design. I think it also has to do a lot with figuring out who your players are as players, what they want, what they expect, kind of like you mentioned and kind of like you're, you're kind of saying, but in the sense of you have to know what they want and know what they're I, 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 capable of doing. I want to say this. I think that a lot of people for this, this, I, 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 I'm going to say this. I'm badly socialized. I'm, I, I'm sorry. Um, I feel very strongly that people don't realize they're playing a fucking game. There's rules for it. It's procedural. Like, like they, they, it tells you like what happens during the game. And then they sit down and they want to be like, doing something that's completely unrelated to the, to the gameplay. Like, how do I seduce there. the dragon? Yeah, or no, I mean, not even that, but just like, let's talk in character around a campfire for two hours. And I'm like, no, there's, there's procedures. We roll for encounters. You know, you can use the, I don't want to, I don't want to waste time. Uh, you can do that, I guess, if it's relevant to the, to the, to the gameplay or anything, but like, it's a game, right? I, I think on the other hand, though, <clears throat> more what I meant is, I guess going to the bad and good game designs that you've made. Every time that I've had, I've struggled with a game and not enjoyed it has been because I didn't read my table correctly. I, I listened to them or listened to a couple of the voices and I didn't really figure it out. Like I, I built a giant dungeon because they said that they want to do a dungeon and they're completionists. But I never realized that if I or another person who was not present, since I would be running and he would be at work, they had no one to lead them. And none of them wanted to lead, so they ended up just devolving into bickering and dying in the dungeon. I, I think it kind of comes down to good game design is when you can anticipate how your players will act and create a story and encounters around that. My current group, I build no dungeons. We, we don't do dungeons. It just is, and we have a great time. But the point kind of... I'm sorry. No, you have to I, agree I, I, in your I, head with with the theory, I, or they'll come for you and make you stop playing the way you enjoy. 
It's yeah, true. <laughs> and I, I just want to clarify something. Um, you know, I think we're kind of talking about two slightly different things. One is game design, like the design of the module or the, you know, the concept of the adventure, and the other is games mastering technique. And mm -hmm. so, you know, my question about good and bad design is really about how to structure modules. Like my mistake was trying to do a soap opera with witches and made it overly complicated. So it was a bad design. I don't. Uh, that was a success. Just your three-year game was a success. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, it's not, it wasn't poorly designed. That's correct. You did well. Well, you know, if I had my players here with me, I think they would be arguing that it sucked. So Then I would tell them that they're crazy because they continue to play a three-year-long game <laughs> I, that sucked. I would say that. Believe me, I would say that. I would that. question my yeah, players. Yeah. That. It, it, it does suck at the Red Wedding or whatever, but people, are they like it. They like to hurt. Uh, they like it. Uh, wait a second. I know what they would tell me. I just realized. They would say, no, your game design sucked but your games mastering was great and you kept us coming back to the table. That's, no, 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 no. I've been on the, Reddit. What, 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 what people are saying, they don't have any idea. It's they needed to be modded and just. <laughs> anyway, so I just wanted to make that distinction for the discussion. So when you're talking about, you know, like this topic, uh, I recommend kind of splitting out between GM technique versus game design. So just for, people listening conversationally, you know, distinction. I, I actually kind of disagree with your outlook on it because okay. they're one and the same. Because you can take an actual pre-made adventure path or a module and you could give it to two separate people and it's their GM skill that will determine whether it's enjoyable or not. It'll determine whether, you know, like how they RP, how they approach things how they make decisions will determine it and how that they choose to run it. Yeah, I, I it, definitely all, agree with that. I, I totally do. I just think that there's, there's like a four factor grid here. It's like good game design, bad game design, good games mastering technique, bad games mastering technique. And you can get that combination of bad design, good games master and still have a good game. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, if you still have good game mastering technique, it can make any game yeah. good. Yeah, I like, totally agree with that. So they are, in my opinion, one in the same topic. Because, but the other hand is, you could have an amazing written adventure or module or idea, and if your game's mastery technique sucks, it's a bad game. Yeah, it, right. the problem isn't with the soap opera. Like that's a way to run games. You, you get a bunch of. You get a bunch of actors, and they all have different relationships. Um, there's boons. There's there's like a political, like power map or whatever, right? Like that's 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 a way that people have been running games for twenty years. It, it it's it's you deciding whether or not you know the outcome. I think is the is the line you're looking at for good or bad design. The 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 game that failed when you were in high school was because you. You had an idea in your head, and it Ooh. it didn't interact with the players playing the game, and there was a lot of frustration there. You couldn't make it all fit. And then in the modern era, when you've grown, you sit down and you're like, "Well, you know, together we're going to find out what happens in this game as a group." Right. Right. It's that element that the um, there's not a predetermined outcome 
that even the the DM or the GM or referee or whatever you want to call it is is aware of or necessarily wants to to push. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't have an agenda. They're there to arbitrate. Well, and and it doesn't mean you can't have your story about the key and the that all can be going right. on. Right. You just the right. the players get to find out. They get to they like they want to dick with it. They want to ignore it, and it's going to affect whatever this happening. Right. Exactly. So you, you get to tell their their story. And in, in particular, I think what was important about that environment was because, you know, if you look at a game like Cyberpunk to try to um, be successful in that game, um, it's it's going to be very challenging for a referee, you know, a new a new referee, you know, or, or game master, as opposed to other games that where you can kind of take this sort of preset expectation of well we'll we'll run a, a module that you know let's let's go to the keep on the borderlands you know um, not saying that that's not challenging but there's a different set of expectations and players will read books like that and see a very open sandbox world in a science fiction setting like that and want to do drastically different things with their characters I think just kind of rounded out is the idea that good design and DM technique alone and together can make or break games. And if you are middling at both, you can have a good game. Right. Yeah. And I agree with that. And I think that also just, uh, if you have a good design and a good games master, that's the best, obviously that's the best combination. But there are two squares in my little grid that also produce good games. You know, good design and maybe not that great a games master can still carry the day, uh, and vice versa. And good players. Because there's, yeah, I was just oh, about yeah, to say absolutely. the same thing. There's the third That's box. Good players. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think good players is essential, really, to any good game. If you, ha if you don't have good players, then no matter whether or not you're a great games master with a great design, if you don't have good players, then it's going to be a little flat anyway. So, yeah. Well, it, it, unless you're meaning the sense of it's either good or disruptive player, because players do come in a spectrum, whether you ascribe to the four or five or two or, uh, approach, they... Anything above disruptive tends to be a pretty good party, so long as the majority isn't disruptive. Though one very bad player can ruin a game. You're these are these I, I are think... personal. Uh, it's just nothing to do with the game. Like, don't hang yeah. around with spastic assholes. Like, I'm not playing D and D with those people. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a health condition. I, I just want to say also, I have. It is. I'm, I'm it really is a health lucky. condition. <laughs> I'm really lucky. I got. I I got some fabulous role-playing uh, players. And just to give you an example of what I mean, there was a period where we were playing, two of my players were playing three characters each. And they did it so elegantly and so smoothly, switching from character to character, where you knew exactly which character was talking. They were totally different, each character. They had their own, I mean, complete personalities yeah. and everything. I, These guys I, were really, really fun. I mean, I spent a long time working in psych, and and I think the cut is is that like twenty percent of people are fucking terrible, and like twenty percent of people are great, and everybody else is fine. Yeah, definitely.
All right, so anybody else have good design recommendations or experience or bad design recommendations before we go on to the next topic? I, I mean, I, I do want to point out that I, I write a blog that talks about game design, and I could literally talk for hours, but I'm not going to do that here. So if okay, you guys are interested, you should check out shoot, Hack and Slash. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah, it's hack shoot us a link to your blog. You got it it's on there. there. We'll, we'll do. You just type oh. Hack and Slash into Google, and we'll take you. We'll we'll we'll, right, we'll, we'll, we'll blast like ourselves at the end. Oh, I'm going to do it now okay. too. Pex knows. Okay. Yeah, we. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but we'll I'm, we'll do the uh, whole. I'm poorly socialized. I, I have to self promote. We can tell. Oh, it, everybody in gaming is self-promote. <laughs> like mean, about every 40 minutes, I have to go like, follow, subscribe. It's it's no good. Well, I, I wish know, I could do that. I, I suck at that. That's my problem. That's a serious problem because, you know, if you don't self-promote, uh, you're probably not getting promoted. No kidding. <laughs> so... All right, okay. so go to elthos.com, everybody. I just want you all to do that. All right, so the next topic <laughs> is mine. Wow. Using biomes and climate to build both immersion and encounters. Uh, okay, what the heck do you mean when you say immersion? Can you define that so that we don't get hooked up on that as soon as we start talking about it? But I want you to get hooked up on it. Okay, fine. Can I... Something not incredibly jarring... Um, I guess like, if you're in a tundra and there's snakes everywhere, why are there snakes everywhere? The yeah, idea of like, be. you can kind of set the scene and get people drawn into your world just by using these two things correctly. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I spelt it wrong. Thank you. AC grad. This is something that I actually uh, have used for a number of years for writing as well as for GMing. Um, quite a number of years ago, when Earthdawn Journal was still a thing, back when uh, uh, Faster was publishing uh, Earthdawn First Edition. <clears throat> so what I did. The original Conquest of Elysium came yeah. Out. I, I, I t I, what I did is I went through all the books and pulled out all the critters and figured out and, and I built a food chain divided by biome. And so I've, I went through uh, all the critters and placed them in each biome according to their position in the food chain and then started looking for holes in the food chain and writing critters to fill those holes. Ended up doing 50 critters over the course of a few years, uh, which is the same number that was in the Creatures of Barsave book, I ended up writing a whole book, um, some of which got picked up by Fasten or part of why I'm now with the company. But yeah, uh, using the biomes and understanding food chains and thinking about, okay, well, if, the, if you've got a predator this nasty, what is it eating that it has to be that mean in order to take it down? Um. Yeah, that's interesting. The yeah. the the I saw a thread one time where they were talking about how the the Tarask has all those spikes, and mm -hmm. the only reason animals in nature have spikes is to make them unappetizing to larger predators. So they're like, well, what's the predator of the Tarask? You know, 
but I, I play D and D, which means that the contents of terrain and hexes are super important. And the encounter tables are extensively written to generate things that are only natural to those environments. And like mm-hmm. my own encounter tables, uh, tell, you know, give information about animal spore and sign. And so you kind of develop the relationship of each separate, you know, zone that has, uh, a bunch of creatures in it. I, I mean, like it's, it's definitely, and then, and then in the terrain, there are terrain effects for how easy it is to get lost and what it does to your movement and everything else. So that, that's a big part of the games I play. Um, and a lot of the work's done for me, right? There's a um, wonderful b- uh, piece of work. If you've ever played blue planet, uh, the blue planet creature book, natural selection is my gold standard for how to write a creature book. Because it starts off talking about biomes, and it talks about the vertical biomes of a rainforest, which are important to the game world. And so it draws you into the game world and sets up this whole thing for immersing your characters based on where they are, not only on what island, but where are they in terms of altitude? Are they halfway up the hillside? Are they halfway up a tree? What they're going to encounter is going to vary whether they're in the canopy or down on ground level. And then it goes into this whole thing of why would you actually have a creature encounter um, in, in, in real life? Uh, predation. And the critter is hungry and thinks you look like food. Well, it's not just predation, too. It's also defense, especially of a den or of young. Um, I think that also kind of comes into it. And in knowing yeah. in certain types of biome, you have herbivores that are not after eating you they're after just to kill you because you're in their territory Mm -hmm. and it's understanding that in a desert those don't really exist but in a forest in heathland in many different biomes those do yeah the the blue planet book goes on uh goes on into that um it doesn't just talk about predation it also talks about competition uh, that uh, some animals are territorial and will regard you as a competitor and try and run you out. So there's den prote- uh, and young protective behavior. Uh, there's also mating season when the creatures may act very much out of character for how they act the rest of the year. Um, anybody who's ever dealt with, say, deer will know that a stag during most of the year will run from you, but a stag in rut will mess you up. Yeah, and using information like that to kind of build a more, I guess, immersive travel experience. What does uh, that mean yeah, when you, you say immersive? Do you want to like, do you want to like pull, throw ice water on people or? Yes, I do. <laughs> I, I actually crush up ice. I, I use the crushed ice function on my fridge Sand, and throw sand in their faces or blow. I don't understand. Actually, immersive sand in my pocket. Immersive. Immersive is immersion to you only physical, or is it a mental state for you? It's not defined. That's my point. Is that people talk about immersion? What they, I, I notice that. I notice that when people use the word immersion, it's usually because they want to be dicks to other people. It's kind of what I've come to learn. So, like, I, I ask well, people to define it because really, it, it really always true. seems to mean whatever the person that's thinks ridiculous. is the best. Well, there's no 
definitive definition because people have different experiences with immersion. So they think that, you know, their version of what they are talking about is what immersion is. For me, immersion is the sense of being in another world. What is that, that qualitatively? Are you, let, me, let, let, me, let me put it this way. It's getting into the situation the character is in deeply enough that you have an emotional response to what your character is going through. See, so the question I'm like, we're talking about your question was about immersion. And if the, if the text of immersion is by nature subjective, then I I don't really know. How do you make them feel uh, in character? Subjective. Immersion is when they feel in character. That feel Uh, is subjective, right? So how do you? Yeah. But for me, it goes beyond that. My best experiences but, with immersion were I felt like not only was I into my character and what my character was doing, blah, blah, blah. I felt like I was in another world, literally. Like I felt like I was in another world. To me, that is what I mean when I say immersion. And it was the same experience I had when I read Lord of the Rings. I felt like I went into another world while I was reading it. Same thing with D&D or role-playing games. If the games master gives me enough sort of visual narrative mm-hmm. and the and their world is sufficiently depthy then i will be drawn into it and feel like it's a real thing and i'm going to a real place that's in another dimension or whatever but it's a feeling it's subjective i agree but for me that's what i mean by immersion well so, if it's if it's subjective for you then I mean, as isn't that person, the actual term of immersion like when you feel like you're drawn into the other world or when you're playing an RPG, you feel like you're drawn in character into their world. What, I, mean, what I, I, what, I feel like what, that's kind of the base definition of immersion. Yeah. yeah if, well, if, is, what I'm saying yeah, is, is if that is subjective to your feeling, then the only way to get you to have that feeling is to talk with you as an individual and, and work out what causes that feeling for you. And so it's really difficult to talk about broad spectrum design when what you're talking about is a, person it's why when i have sex with somebody i ask them what they like right yeah well um i think as they once said on um the it crowd this is quite the opposite of sex or something like that uh sort of anyway i mean yeah i get um, what you're saying in other words hack and slash i think what your point is is that look you can't really quantify how to do this with somebody so from a designer's point of view how do you deal with that you want your players to get into immersion that's a very personal thing that's a games master technique in my opinion it's not going to be you as a designer can create something that's going to cause immersion that's the games master and the players doing that themselves. I mean, to be clear, too, you can you can use broad generalizations like it's more immersive not to use disassociated mechanics, but that that when you break that when you break that statement down into what it's actually saying, it's actually saying fucking nothing. So, like like when you're a designer, you're like, well, what's useful? What can I put my times towards? It seems like it seems like that only is handled on the interpersonal level, and you're just responsible for designing a game that is fun for people, that has enjoyable activities and lets them do things that yeah. you know people get excited about. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I agree with that. From a designer's point of view, that's that's what you should be shooting for, in my opinion. But on the other hand, there is this thing, immersion, which is a beautiful thing. It's great. But I, I think it's really a technique thing 
that comes from the games master and the players creating that as a possibility. And part of it is the depth of the world. Part of it is, in the experiences I've had, Games Master did not focus on uh, stats. They focused on the story and on the characters. And when they did their NPCs, they were the NPC. You really felt like, okay, this guy, this NPC is real. You felt it. So that kind of thing is technique thing. And that drew me in as a player into you know the world. So I'd I'd like to add something uh, in this. Uh, this is sort of a technique that I use a lot as a game master, um, and also as a designer. So when when you're looking at something and you're trying to describe it to the players, I I think I get what you're saying, BB, um, and and that. You know, like if I were to talk to, to my players, I may not be, you know, super eloquent um, all the time. But if I start to describe and I say, OK, you've come upon the town of Ravenstand. It's in Murgadim. It's this uh, very warm swamp, um, this warm swamp setting built on these ancient cypress trees that have grown abnormally large. And the town itself is uh, raised uh, and built on platforms and nailed to the sides of these massive cypress trees. Um, as you can see, there's very little dry ground. Um, now you've got some ser you've got some things to work with. And then as I go on to explain that what little dry ground you see is where there are a few open fire pits. Um, but for the most part, the entire town is lit up by um, uh, phosphorescent lichens and mushrooms, and they have these mushroom pot lanterns hanging in the windows. Um, because when you live in a tree house, there's a very real threat, very real sense that fire will destroy your home. And since they can't build on the ground, that's a problem. Okay. Um, can, so can, I, can I respond? Something. I sure. want to respond to this. Okay. So now the things that you just said from a Games Master technique that started to draw me in were the descriptive narrative elements, not the um, sort of explanatory elements. So like one of the things that you know I felt was when you said it's a warm swamp, okay, that's evocative. That brings me into your world. So what I do and what the games masters who I've played with who were using a technique that drew me into their world, what they would do is they would kind of visualize the world from the player's point of view, from the character's point of view, and look through the character's eyes and see what they're seeing and then describe that briefly with, you know, kind of like uh, impressionistic imagery. And then they would include things like smell, like uh, you feel hot and sweaty as you're trudging through the swamp, that kind of descriptive narrative is what drew me into the Games Master's world. And it didn't have to be a lot. It just had to be enough so that I got a feeling for where I was. And then from there, you know, then the adventure unfolds and da-da-da-da-da. But it, it also gives you some tools, right? So not only are you in, in the world, but you're also, now you, you start to imagine the surroundings and realize what kinds of things you might or might not have to work with in your immediate surroundings. Absolutely. That, that is definitely useful. That's good. Uh, and those things are necessary. You definitely need those. But when you're talking about immersion and drawing your players into your world, it isn't those things that draw them in, in my opinion. It's the evocative descriptions that draw them in from an immersion perspective. 
those other things that are useful definitely must be there. They're important, but that's not, you know, anyway, that's, that's I feel like it's the, the whole image in and of itself that's made and it's, it draws you into kind of want to know more, but at the same time you feel a little bit more there. Hey, yeah. Dino Stomper. Yes. You, you have a great voice, man. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm listening to this, you know, as as well as being here. And every time you talk, I feel like I'm listening to like a real professional podcast. Hmm. Oh, well, thank you. Everybody else is terrible. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> That's life. <laughs> Brains. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I guess kind of just the, the point of the topic I had brought up was just the idea of using less thought of bits of world building and in the idea of what's actually in the world itself being made just through two things that are pretty simple to kind of just snap judgment. But at the end of the day, you go, well, what is actually there? And using it and building it to kind of create a more deep world and yeah. a better understanding of the world that you want your players to be in. I definitely love that idea. and But the way that I would want to use it is I would just want to take impressionistic flashes from that material and then kind of float that to my players, not like full narrative, you know, like a paragraph, but just brief wisps of impressions that they're getting as they're kind of trudging through the heated, you know, terrain of the swamp and the steam. And every, you know, few minutes or so, I would throw them another impression, like, oh, you catch the whiff of a decaying, you know, vegetation, and, you know, you, you have to turn your heads away from it. It's so pungent. You know, that sort of thing. You know, your, your, your demands uh, make me, just listening to them make me feel anxious. It's so much to ask. <laughs> just as... Okay. Uh, you're like, like, no, I need it gentler. I need it more more dabbed in, the more put oh. in. The... <laughs> it's actually okay. the, uh, sorry, you, you sorry. turn your head to the side, you're sick and thing. Just one time I said that, to a group of players I'd, I'd never played with before. And he goes, what, we don't get fort saves? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like, anyway, just, I'm, just, like, I'm just trying to give an idea of what I mean. I, I don't... No, I, I, I get what you mean. It, good job. I think it throws back to the point earlier of how to implement a you know, design in the narrative sense of not so... And like more of DM technique from the idea of giving the small snippets, giving the piece of information at a time, letting them do something and they get a little bit more, and then saving the paragraph or two box text, as I call it, as I guess it is called, four major moments that then make them feel so much grander. Like, oh, you go through this town and it smells like horse shit constantly. <laughs> and then you get to the massive cypress trees that are just rising from the heat of the swamp itself to touch the sky and they're snapped right into it. There you go. That was that's what I'm talking about. Evocative. Yeah, evocative Ev description. Now now yeah. VB just has to decide 
uh, how much Dino Stomper charges, and then they can go to the hotel room. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, we're not all, you know, we're not all going to be that out on the spot. Um, but I think being able to communicate that, you know, and being able to communicate the setting and at its base, you know, that you've thought it out, you know, that you've thought about this somewhat before you've just thrown it at your your players. Even, a, even if you had to improvise, you put some thought into that improvisation. Um, because if you don't buy it, I don't understand. I, I, I just don't see, you know, how they're supposed to buy it. <clears throat> yeah. yeah uh, you know, absolutely. If, if if you don't set the stage well enough, you really can't expect the the players to to pick up their roles uh you know to to a deeper extent. And if you want the players to get seriously into their characters and into the the experience of of telling this story, you've you've got to give them uh, material to work with. You've got to give them uh, set dressing, uh, you know, scenery, etc. Yeah, I'm, think, I'm think, the, think theatrical here. I'm the kind of player when I'm actually playing that I don't want to hear. Uh, you've discovered a secret door. Now it's open. You know, um, on the other hand, I know that there are some players that would rather play it purely mechanically that way. Um, and, you know, you may have to read your players, you know, if you start to give them details about it and they become frustrated, uh, look around the room, you know, see, is this, is this who, you know, is this how we, no, no, I, I, I have to say, man, like, uh, if they're sitting down at a table to play D and D, and then during the D and D game, following the D and D rules, they don't like it. Well, then what, that's the problem with the that they shouldn't don't play poker if you don't like poker. Like, like I, I don't know what to tell them if they're upset about the way the game works, right? Like that's not on me, and that's not on the game or the table. That's on them. Like if you play Monopoly and and you land on the thing and you have to pay all your money because it's a hotel, like of course that sucks. But them's the rules, right? But there's no rule that says this is how every secret door, you know, like that uh, says uh, necessarily you have to expose the mechanics behind every secret door, every trap. Um, I mean, I, I the last five E game I was in, I literally got the description as I was trying to ask, you know, well, how can I tell this is a secret door? The DM just turned around and told me it's open now, you know, and I was I was disappointed. You have to know, and and again, this comes to, uh, back to reading the table. You have to know when the players want more description, and when they want to fast forward to the next thing. Yeah, this seems like a taste issue, right? Like you should have yeah. been like, yeah. "No, do it the way I like." There's yeah. well, there, there there's a matter of uh, expectation. If the if the DM is that, I don't want to say insensitive. That's not quite the word I mean. But um, if, if the DM just isn't reading the table uh, that well. Then you get a problem with the DM, where the, you've got players saying, "Hey, give me some more material to work with here," and the DM says, "No, you don't need it. Move on." Hey, excuse me, what 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 the hell am I here at this table for? I'm here to to, to tell a story, right? Um, 
So my you know, intention wasn't to say that the rules were irrelevant. It was just to say that that elaboration was important to me. And it's it's a matter of what the game is about. You're there to to cooperative cooperatively, excuse me, tell a story. Uh, I just want to get some clarification, though. I'm not sure I quite understand what your, you know, kind of uh, objection was with that situation. Could you just restate, like, restate that for me? Sure. So um, I, I'm in a situation where uh, my character is, is running down a hallway um, and makes a critical success uh, in terms because he's searching uh, for a passage. He knows that there's somebody behind this wall. Um, they, they've got a crossbow, um, it, you know, like a, a, an, an arrow loophole um, that they're shooting at us through. And there's no apparent passage so i'm looking and he rolls a critical success uh so i asked the game master when he tells me yeah you find a secret passage here and i ask him for details about it i say so what does it look like uh are there any you know do i see you know any obvious differences in stonework because i'm a dwarf um and he just tells me it, okay it's open yeah i think the appropriate response to that is why are you so bad at this dude yeah, it sounds to me like the Games Master probably just had a little dashed line on his map that showed there's a secret door and really didn't have a clue as to how that secret door actually works. And when you said, what does it look like, and so on, he's probably just flustered and was like, okay, you yeah, don't need to know that. If it was Pathfinder 2, he's probably right. more interested in like how the battle's going to play out than what you care about anyway, so... I mean, yeah. to be fair, Pathfinder books tend to give you a little bit too much information about stonework. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. So I, right. I, I get, I mean, my, my impression is that might be what happened in that case. But I do agree with you that good games mastering, you know, the games master would have done some research and understand how secret doors work. And so when they put it in their world, or just off the top of his head, yeah. picked something yeah. interesting. Like you could yeah. come up with the 10 right. things exactly. right off the top of your head. Like, like yeah, you yeah. can Play make something game, up. Man. Right. Exactly. Right. If somebody's asking you for information about what they're seeing, you should be able to provide them something. It's really important in old school play because the way the secret door works, the fluff is the fictional reality that the players can manipulate. In Pathfinder, it's way less important because the game is defined around the actions you're limited to taking during the battle. And I know you don't have to be that way, but that's the design expectation. So it may be about priorities right. for him as a player, but to heck with him anyway. I... I Speaking think, uh, of priorities as a player, we're getting poked to move on to the next topic. Oh. <laughs> I mean, we're also an hour in and we've covered everything but one. <laughs> oh. We can always circle back around. Yeah, it's true. You know, we should cover it. How long is the show supposed to be? <laughs> Half hours. It runs for a while. You know. It feels like forever. It does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We got 45 minutes here, Peck says. That bad? All right, so let's talk about this. No, not no, because not. Of... All right, uh, yeah, what is the next topic? Favorite historical Texas. figures. That was mine. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, do you want to move to it, or do you want to keep on the previous topic for a minute? Well, you know, 
we can Since appease it's your topic. Max and round back if you guys would prefer. I mean, are we like are we like talking like Cyrus? you know or xerxes is that the kind of historical figures we're talking about are we talking about like clinton or like I know, I think know, anything mccarthy I don't, I don't. historical is really wide open you know it, it covers pretty much anything that's not right now yeah, so non-contemporary andrew's probably committed to memory like at least three censuses in london between 1860 and 1880 but <laughs> uh in berlin and paris and new york oh wow <laughs> i guess i'll start go my favorite historical char uh, character figure is pyrrhus of epirus who is a um third century Diadoc, heir of Alexander the Great. And why I adore him so much is because he breaks the rule of world building where you can make anything as arbitrary as you want. This man is fighting the good guys. He's winning. He's beating them. And in the last battle, he scoffs and turns his men away after winning. Then he goes and helps another evil king become king of Moorland. And while he's fighting some upstart, plucky good guys, he's in the middle of the street as a lady looks out at him, grabs a tile off of her roof, hucks it out of his head, and he's dead. Anticlimactic, arbitrary, Ouch. real. Who's this guy again? Pyrrhus of Epirus. I'll link a real, it. A real historic character? Person, I think we call them people when they when they were. Real. Oh yeah, that's true. It's all the same. Okay, but is he a real historical person? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna link him right now. Oh wow. Okay, I I want to go check him out. So he was like just basically punk rock before there was anything wow. that was like that. Oh, the guy that the pirate victory is named after. Yep. Yeah. Oh him. Oh, oh yeah. 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 yeah now was, we. Know. He was amazing, <laughs> right? Yeah, he reminds me of there was another guy, Mithridates. Yes. Yeah, he, he was, was awesome. He was freaking awesome. And this was the poisoner. He used to like poison yes. himself with every known poison, little bits at a time, so that he could become immune to all poisons. And uh, now, if the poison yeah. were in front of you, then I would of course be expected to switch. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but we actually get the modern day term Mithridate, which I believe was in one of the editions of. D&D as a cure-all for poisons from his name because when he took poison to end his life after the Romans had finally defeated him it didn't kill him and he ended up getting executed. Jeez. Kind of backfired down him, didn't it? Oh, Pretty badly. Mm. He just, uh, I guess I had a pun there, but I lost. Sorry. Oh, well. Some, uh, thinking about making some kind of venomous remark. Ha <laughs> Arf, arf. There's no elixir for how I feel. <laughs> I, I think, though, that what's really cool about using history is just realizing how absolutely absurd some things are and how it can just shape the world that you play and make RPGs in. Oh, definitely. Here's, 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 here's something that, that is 
really like I I'm an, I have an art degree and and obviously uh, I spend a lot of time around people who are big into history because that's a pretty significant subsection of like role players and gamers. Yeah. Um, the the oh, man. So I I have a little bit of Latin experience and 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 I've been looking into cuneiform and and human society has about 12,000 years of contiguous history and I'll be goddamned if they weren't complaining about and facing the exact same social issues and difficulty as we are today the fact that anybody thinks that anything going on isn't exactly what was going on you know 2000 4000 8000 years ago like there there's this cuneiform there's a huge cache of cuneiform tablets that are all about bitching about this guy who keeps ripping people off with bad copper like and and they talk about it and they're like don't buy from this guy and this guy's like you're keeping me out of like your 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 uh your hobby niche or whatever you can't tell bad press about me and then they're like oh god you know like the rich people have all the money and and there's not enough jobs it's the same shit like like the romans there's latin passages from uh you know complaining about the kids how they won't listen in class and everybody wants to write a book and oh yeah the one where everyone writes a book yeah 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 i mean like it's the same shit it's it's literally exactly the same problems we're having today for thousands of years and just people are like no it's like some new frontier no it's the same stuff you know we get different we get different tools but uh people themselves have really not changed yeah yeah, not hardly at all yeah Yeah. only technology has changed people haven't changed so when i when i run games whether they're in the far future or the past they're often based off my experiences in the now because it's the same shit with different names like like look egypt is a really good example because i've been doing a lot of research lately like they had an autocratic like state dictate about like what sort of art people were able to produce, but people produced all kinds of art in Egypt. You know, they found it, they knew about perspective, and other stuff. It just wasn't culturally allowed. And like, they had the same things. They had a King, but then they had this political group of power action committees that acted like a Senate that, cause all the religions would have different power brokers and it was five. Yeah, I mean it's just it's the same stuff. And they and they had the same concerns and they were into the same types of stupid dramas. You know, you think reality TV's new? No, it was the same thing 4000 10,000 years ago. It's crazy. Yeah, I found a book of uh, ancient Egyptian stories that had been translated in like the late 1800s and I have this full volume. And what was so surprising about it is how funny they are and how kooky like, you know, like in one of them, uh, you know, this disciple of this priest winds up uh, making his way. He, he makes his way down into the tombs and, and he meets a, uh, a mummy and the mummy's talking to him and, and he's an ancient pharaoh, but he's like a jerk. And it just goes back and forth between the two of them. And the mummy wants him to do things for him. And he's like, but I don't really want to. And, you know, it's just this really funny, weird story. And uh, I was very surprised it came from ancient Egypt. Like yeah. it was a real ancient Egypt story. All those cultures have, have hero figures. Like we have Hollywood people. Every era had people like, like the Romans had gladiators and they were like sports stars and they had merchandising and they had like, oh, yeah, you know, lawyer support. It's just, yeah, yeah. Yes, the same stuff for thousands and yeah. thousands of years. It's crazy. Absolutely. And everybody's like, it's fundamentally new now.
No. Oh, no. So have you no. read Have you read the Ramayana? Uh, the Ramayana. Mm. The Ramayana, uh, one of the great uh, Indian epics. Is yeah, it, is it part of the Mahabharata? Son of no, no. Uh, it's, it's not. A it's, not it's, it's a different set of stories from the from the Mahabharata. Okay. Uh, the Ramayana. Uh, the, to break it down real simple, this uh, guy who's got everything going for him, major privilege. Uh, marries like the hottest woman in the whole country and then starts getting crazy jealous about her. And yeah, Sita Sings the Blues is a, is a, uh, a pretty, a, a very accessible version of the Ramayana to Americans. Um, if you go, go read the original, uh, you can get it. And uh, there's like 47 translations of the Ramayana in English. Go for it. Um, the, um, so he starts getting really crazy jealous about her and like projecting and not trusting her because he's being so jealous of what other guys might be trying you know, that other guys might be trying to hit on her. And then the, the villain of the piece comes in and kidnaps her. He raises an army and he goes and rips the guy's castle down and rescues uh, his wife and then tells her, I can't trust you because you've been out of my sight. And I think you may have, you know, gotten on with this, you know, this guy that, that, that took you prisoner. She's like, I was carried off as a prisoner. What the hell, dude? And then, yeah, they, they get into it in a very serious way. She finally uh, call, calls down a major goddess to, to witness for her. It, it's a very big deal, but it's, you know, it's the same shit. Uh, the people getting all weird about uh, their relationships and being jealous of, of each other and stuff. Um. Yeah, it's 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 the same basic story, and you pull this kind of stuff in. You can, there's so much you can do with it. As far as fav, uh, favorite historical figures, I got so many of them. I, I I'll give you one. Anybody ever heard of George Leslie? Sounds Nobody? vaguely familiar, but no, doesn't come to mind. George Leslie in the no, not a con man. Um, although he did pull a few uh, frauds in his uh, in his life, George Leslie in the mid to late eighteen hundreds was about th two degrees off of being a supervillain. He was responsible for most of the successful bank robberies in the United States for about a ten year period, including the biggest bank robbery ever pulled off. The one at uh, the Manhattan Savings Institution, they got away with three and a half million dollars in 1878. Which, if you roll that forward to modern day under inflation, that's about fifty-five million dollars they walked off with. Leslie planned all this stuff out. Uh, I've been doing major research on him for the New York source book that uh, is coming up for 1879, and he's going to be a, a, a figure in there where he's leading this triple life. Uptown, he's this playboy bachelor, book collector, bon vivant. Yeah, he's on everybody's party list. 
Uh, he collects first editions. He's well read. He's great at parties. I brilliant conversationalist guy that people want that the rich people want to have around. Downtown, he's living under an assumed identity as an IRS field agent. The IRS has, of course, no idea he even exists. Has a wife under that identity and a whole life that's going on that he's living. And then on the side, he's planning all these bank robberies and that, that are these, these like Ocean's Eleven levels things where they do all these rehearsals. And you watch the movie Ocean's Eleven and there's people going, oh, come on. Nobody's going to go to all that trouble and do all the walkthroughs and practice. And Leslie actually did. And that's why he was so successful. And so, yeah, you, you, there's, there's characters like that all through history that you can pull in and do so much with. You start mining this stuff. You just have this wealth of people to draw, just even the idea of a personality from, oh, I did something similar to this, the character says. And it just can add so much more to the game than just faceless paladin number seven. Oh, absolutely. You know, ha have some characters in the back of your head. This is another thing about uh, successful GMing. You know, have a few odd, oddball personalities in the back of your head so that when somebody knocks a potter off the scaffolding while he's trying to repaint his sign... <laughs> you have something more than, okay, you know, this is faceless NPC number 27. That yeah. actually happened in my Earth Dawn campaign, and the guy became an ongoing character. It was one of those weird things the players kind of latched onto. Yeah, being able to draw from, you know, all kinds of characters into your world is, is a great thing, not only from an NPC perspective, even from a background sort of uh, ongoing like backstory perspective like you know uh, the character that comes to my mind is Alcibiades who uh, you know I mean Gibiades like fuck that oh yeah I mean he was <laughs> he was incredible I mean the guy was amazing uh, in terms of what he did in terms of world history I mean he probably was single single-handedly responsible for taking down Hellenic civilization you know, so uh, that kind of character, in other words, you know, and your backstory could really, you know, and if they happen to run across him one day on a ship or, you know, in their travels or whatever, that could be a really amazing moment in your world, you know, that kind of thing. Just having these personalities that somebody bumps into, you know, just tangentially. Uh, adds depth where you know your your party is at a bar and suddenly realizes the guy at the end of the bar is some major figure and that's why there's so much uh, attention being paid down at that end of the bar you know, maybe that gives you an opportunity but uh, yeah you know it it, it adds you know, like we were talking about earlier, it adds to the the detail and to your scenery, to your uh, world building, etc. And remembering one thing, you know, just the I, I find that a lot of GMs and even players kind of forget this is 
they're all just people. Yep. And pe- they're just never played like that sometimes, you know? Like, you just forget that these are people, too. They're Sure, they're characters that might exist for the next 12 minutes, but for those 12 minutes, they've existed since they were born up until this moment. They have a yeah. personality, they act a certain way, but even if you can't act that out as a DM, you still have to bear in mind that this isn't just, I want you to kill five goblins because um, goblins are bad. They yeah, have motivation yeah. beyond just some inane surface level, unless they're a bureaucrat. Yeah, one of the things that I like to do is I watch you know uh, movies uh, looking for characters, you know types of characters, you know to and I I try to imitate them. Like I'll watch a scene in a movie uh, a few times and try any characters that really sort of draw me in. And I'll take those characters and I'll, you know, have a note or whatever in my world of that personality, that character type. And then, you know, I add that to kind of my Games Master toolkit of characters that can show up. And uh, that's that's helpful for me uh, to be able to do that. People watching. Yeah, it, it's actually useful. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, and practicing them. You know, like I'll, I'll sit there and practice, uh, you know, uh, to uh, Mifuni, you know, doing uh, from, uh, you know, uh, Hidden Fortress, that character. I want that character in my world, you know, that kind of thing. And all different kinds of characters. I mean, there's movies are full of them. And so, you know, but but taking those and making a list so I'll remember during the game, oh, yeah, I got these characters. I can pull these guys out of the hat any time. But it takes some practice to be able to do it well, you know, to get into that character and sort of become that character for a few minutes. And then my NPCs wind up all these different characters from all these different movies. And I'm sure that it adds so much more to the game because I do something incredibly similar, and my players say that it adds so much from DMs who just kind of cardboard stand out there and that's all the rp or that's all the character is unless they're a super special major important character yeah i had one games master who she had a good character but she only had one and so every npc was that character oh Oh, no (laughs) yeah i i tend to have a like i have a a sort of a book a notebook full of okay well here's here's my npcs particularly if my i know my uh, players are going to be in a populated area and so i'll have some sort of preset npcs off to the side there um but i can pretty much count on um players uh to decide that their characters want to randomly you know run into certain folks and and that's actually uh, become a lot of fun for me at first it was very intimidating but it's actually become a lot of fun because now you um suddenly you have a surprise character yourself you know as the game master and you're saying oh wow okay well um i've got to come up with this character on the spot what are they doing here what are their you know and like i said at first it's intimidating but then after a while now you've got this wonderful surprise because you're you're seeing something new as the characters are and they may invest in them uh, sort of like Andrew's uh, dwarf painter, um, you know, where they, they the players became invested in uh, that individual and, and those challenges. Um, and so I always keep a, like a notebook handy 
that's really just for that because I'll as we're doing that improv, you know, or I'm I'm adding this character, I'll be making notes about them so that the hmm. next time that they come back, now I'll remember the name and I'll have extras because usually if the you tell when the players have invested in them, they're going to go looking for that character again, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, I actually uh, maintain a wiki. Uh, my my Earth Dawn campaign's been going for 26 years, and so I have a wiki uh, with all the uh, in, uh, NPCs in it. And it, it the, each their wiki page tells me when where the character players met them and what their personality is like and what the relationship is like and so forth, so that I can pull them back up as need be. Okay, um, product promotion time. Uh, we're being prompted a second time here. Uh, Dino Stampa, you were last on the uh, marching order. You want to lead off? Sure, I'm just grabbing my link right now. Um. Probably just kind of. All right, so um, I guess we're finishing out. Okay. Um, so I am here today to represent these fine people over at the World Building Magazine. We are coming out with our latest issue sometime this weekend, and it is about technology and how you can represent it into your world building. Our previous edition was on death and taxes with a centerfold on the Mesoamerican world building. We cover a range of topics. There's currently a theme choice for the August edition as the June one has already been selected, but the August one is going on right now over at our discord. Please follow the link and it is our, in our announcements. Woohoo. Uh, they're also about 60 pages long, so plenty of stuff to go through over plenty of long time. Yeah, I read the uh, about half of the one on magic, and I'm still trying to get time to get back and finish reading it, and thought it was really interesting. I'm glad you enjoyed it. The um, I really enjoyed the Death and Taxes one, and the technology one looks amazing. We have mm -hmm. two interviews, one with a gentleman working on a dystopian postmodern world and another on the game species which is a more scientific approach to spore hmm. fine but that's it that's it for free okay if we're going in inverse uh, order hack and slash you're up next hi my name is Courtney I write the blog hack and slash I stream on Twitch as Agonark Artist. Um, and if you like the cut of my jib, get at me. We got all kinds of stuff there. I got a storefront. I got a Patreon. I got books you can buy. I published Mega Dungeon, um, which is a zine about Mega Dungeons, specifically Newman Hall. I'm putting it in a print. I also publish Hexplore, uh, which is a tool designed to help DMs for players who wander off the map. I recently in Adventure Conquer King and 5e have published an adventure th through our talk press 
uh, Irie of the Dread Eye. Um, so that's out in PDF and print. And I've got a lot more exciting projects coming on the horizon. I take it's my turn. Um, I believe so. Okay. My name is Mark, uh, otherwise known as VB, and uh, I am the creator of the Elthos RPG and the Mythos Machine, which is my web application that supports the Elthos RPG with Games Master prep tools uh, and world building tools. And uh, it's a wonderful and gigantic project. I've been working on it for a very long time. Uh, finally, this year, in, or last year in December, I was able to really get everything together. It's online now. And um, it's really designed for games masters who like to create their own worlds and uh, would like to use the Mythos machine to help them do it. And there you got it. Check it out. I, uh, I can actually say I actually read through this. I saw you post it on here a couple week or so ago uh, about it. I'm sure you've done it more so, and it actually looks really awesome. That's all. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. My pleasure, sir. Okay, there's no way I'm going to sound that smooth, but... Um... This is uh, Brian um, with Lost Relic Industries, and um, my wife uh, Liz and I have created Swords and Shaman of Songard. Uh, it's a tabletop RPG, uh, fantasy RPG set in the fantasy world of Songard, um, which is sort of a, a, a imagine, if you will, a, a very sort of Middle Earth type of world that gets smashed and destroyed by an asteroid from space, and thousands of years later. Um, it, it reemerges as a very wild um, world that's uh, probably a little bit more savage than, than Hyboria. Um, we have elves, uh, they're wild elves, and they uh, roam around in tribes in this. Um, we have dwarves, uh, and they're angry because they don't live in their mountains anymore. Um, and the humans are building uh, new civilizations in uh, bronze. and um, Building, you know, fabulous cities like Hotath and uh, cool little towns like Ravenstand. Uh, if you like uh, mammoths, like swords, and you like shaman, uh, check us out. Uh, we just released version 2.0 of the player's book um, on DriveThruRPG. Okie doke. Um, Andrew Ragland, FASA Games. Um, line developer for 1879, the steampunk successor to Earthdawn. It fills the hole left in our cosmology from where we sold off Shadowrun year, many years ago. Uh, we also have um, Earthdawn 4th Edition. The 4th Edition Kickstarter completed with the delivery of Elven Nations. We are looking at the Iapos sourcebook next to bring out the new big villain in the game world. Uh, we also have a Mystic Paths book coming out that'll offer a lot of new character options. We have the Demon World uh, miniature uh, war game 
We are working on an RPG set in that universe uh, that will be high fantasy survival horror. And we have Noble Armada, which is starship miniature combat in the Fading Suns universe, where how to build a starship is lost tech. And so the goal is to board and capture because starships are rare and precious things. Uh, I have a Patreon going where I'm doing a side project, developing a uh, game mechanic and integrated game world that um, is cla uh, classless and levelless using a sliding uh, scale instead of um, hard statistics uh, for your characters and where the focus is on the consequences of player actions and what, what the players do in character will affect their characters, including their stats, and will, dr and dr will then drive further action. Um, going to be interesting to see how it works. It's, I'm doing a sort of developing in public thing where the people, the, the patrons of this Patreon are at, um, part of the development team, uh, pulling them in and, and actually discussing the mechanics as they're developed with them and playtesting with them and so forth. Uh, pat the patrons then will get uh, copies of the completed game system and everybody else can get it off a of drive through RPG when it's done. And let me paste in a list of stuff here. Boom. And that'll all expand massively into a variety of things. That gives you social media presence for FASA and for specifically for my system and for my Patreon. Peace. All right, now we'll unmute the audience for live Q&A. So if you got questions for our host, you can either type them out, or just come in here, just ask away on your mics. I have a question for Andrew. Go for it. Do you eat bees? The wandering, you bee <laughs> uh, the wandering beekeeper... It's an inside reference. It has to do with the the idea of an itinerant beekeeper, uh, and it would take some time to explain. It goes back to a um, elder inside. Thing. It's it's an it's an uh, historical inside joke, inside reference that goes back to the 1600s, and would take some time to explain. It's glorious. That's all I need to know. It's what you would call an Easter egg. Oh, I had to, Andrew. I'm sorry. I'll go away now. You know, I'm I'm used to it. I'm used to it. Come on, give me give, give us some questions, guys. I got a question for Dino Stomper. How uh, often does your magazine release? Uh, it is bi-monthly, so every other month. So, even or odd months? 
I had a count. It, it's even. I'm sure I'll be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, there you go. Uh, every even month we come out with an issue. We're coming out with one now, and we're going to come out with one in June, and then August, and then October. Uh, VB, on your site here, it says it's still in beta. When do you anticipate to be out of beta? Or what's the criteria for being out of beta? Well, uh, that's a good question. Um, it actually technically is out of beta. So I have two sites now. One is the beta site, which you can go on for free. And it is an exact reflection of the main site or the uh, live site. Um, but the beta site is really for beta testers to test new features as I roll them out and also to do bug fixes. So the data on that site is not as necessarily reliable as on the main site. So uh, it's kind of both at this point, and it's going to continue to be. So I will always be offering the uh, beta site as a free, open, do what you want. And uh, it mimics the uh, primary site one-to-one, -one. And, uh, unless I've just released a new feature. You know, in which case I'll be testing it there. Courtney, are you working on a new book project, or you can't talk about that yet, or no? <laughs> no, I uh, <clears throat> I have something coming out from uh, Raggy soon uh, in a deadly fashion, but I have another thing that I'm working on that I actually can't talk about yet. Uh, I, I, of course, um, do commissions and I'm working on Mega Dungeon and all that stuff as normal. We should have Mega Dungeon 4 out this month, hopefully. So, yeah. And uh, same kind of beta question I asked VB. When do you expect to be out of beta? Wow. Um, when it's done. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, we, our main objective is to not suck. And um, we're hoping that will be uh, towards the end of the year. Um, we do have, we just released 2.0 of the player's book, which we actually consider uh, pretty close to, you know, a possible release candidate, but I think we need to do more uh, testing with uh, high level characters and encounters uh, just to deal with scaling. Um, my play testers tend to like story and narrative and, so sometimes I have to kind of push things out of their comfort zone so that we're we're actually testing with some min maxing because that's important to uh, to know how that affects things. Um, the game master's book is still pretty rough right now, uh, so if you pick it up, um, I promise it will get to a point that it's as polished as the player's book, and we're expecting uh, both books to be that polished sometime uh, probably after August September this year. And at that point, it's just a matter, like I said, of, of getting all the play testing uh, at the high levels. And for those that don't know, what do you th what what kind of feedback are you looking for? What kind of feedback are you not looking for? Um, wow, uh, yeah, everything. Um, you know, I I've gotten back about I've received feedback about the information that's in the books. You know how how uh, introductory it is. Um, what's you know what's missing um because there's a lot of things that we just couldn't put in 
Um, but but in particular right now, what we really need is, you know, are there uh, frustration points with any of the game mechanics? Um, because, you know, that's 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 critical to this. These these books are essentially setting foundation by which we'll build future content on. And, and we have a lot of content to release. But if we get something wrong, like I said, with scaling uh, and that's tricky, um, you know, things like, hey, um, my level seven, uh, you know, warrior has no problem, you know, hitting everything. Uh, my level seven, you know, my friend's level seven druid is, uh, you know, running into issues, um, you know, where they're just getting, you know, squashed by encounters. Uh, and, and if I understand, you know, what type of encounters it is that the druid has problems with or things like that. So pure gameplay mechanics, particularly the late <clears throat> game. Um, the, right. Yeah, the system itself is pretty straightforward. It's it's a deep percentile system, and you want to roll low under, uh, you know, under whatever the difficulty is. Um, but in combat, that difficulty can be, um, you know, it'll be your skill rating, which can be well over one hundred, uh, versus uh, your opponent's defense, which can be you know, pretty significantly high. It's not usually as high as 100, but they can get high in late game, um, 70s, 80s. Um, and so that creates a significant difficulty. And the same sort of mechanic applies to magic as well as melee um, or other things that you might attempt in the game world, just basic skill checks. Got a question here from the World Building Magazine team uh, from... Uh, machinite or whatever you say it speaking of biomes climates have you who have dm'd ever tried role-playing as animals creatures and how did that work out for the table i mean D D, right like all the time half the party can talk to freaking bricks and shit i tend to do if it's like a bird it's just like food 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 what's that food 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 hey, like you're not gonna get anything interesting from a bird but like in my game setting, there's Narnia-like animals in from one region, and it's always fun to be like, "Oh no, I'm a cultured bear. I, I like take baths and and eat real people food." And just seeing them adapt to that is hysterical. Uh, I was uh, reading some Tarzan from 1923 called The Golden Lion, and uh, I really got impressed with uh, the idea that. The different kinds of animals have social groups, and the way that Burroughs kind of brought them out was really interesting in terms of they're very human in certain ways, and but they're animals, so they don't talk, but they, in a lot of ways, they act like people. They have human, you know, or let's say animals have similar emotions and similar social constructs. And so I started uh, GMing my animals from that perspective and that's been a lot of fun so you, you don't describe them as just staring at the uh, hunter with floating hearts above their head <laughs> uh, sorry <laughs> you mean like you mean like health bar it has a full health bar yeah um uh, no i don't my earth dawn campaign uh this group of four orc children turned up uh, one of the uh, player characters 
is an orc and a quester of Garland, which is the passion, the passion of home and hearth and healing. And these four kids who are the equivalent of like four-year-old children get dropped on him. Uh, They're orphans and they, they were taken to this priest basically because the family had nowhere else to, to, to take them. Uh, and they came with a sort of a nanny. There's this big desert cat named Chris Akire, who turned out to be reasonably intelligent and communicated non-verbally. Um, he would uh, slowly raise an eyebrow or he'd twitch his tail. And, and of course, at one point he peed on something to express an opinion of it because cats will do that. <clears throat> I played him very much as a cat that just happened to be smarter than the usual. And we got a question from AC Grad, again from the World Building Magazine team. Uh, What are your thoughts on all-in-one books versus separate players, GMs, etc. books, the strengths and weaknesses, both systems, or publishing RPGs? Depends on the weight of the system. Um, Earth Dawn is a very high crunch system. It also includes a whacking lot of, ga- of game world source material. Uh, as such, it pretty much requires a separate player's and GM's guide simply because of page count. Um, 1879, which has the same engine, runs into the same uh, situation. The player's guide has all the systems you need to play the game. Um, character build, character advancement, combat equipment, spells, enchanting, yada yada. The GM's guide has all the game world material that the GM needs that the players should experience as they discover it, you know? Uh, Plus things like the bestiary and all the stuff that the GM has to handle. I have a I have a D and D clone that I that that I've published. It's called Perdition, and uh, it's all in one book because the setting is defined by you know the mechanics, the classes, the equipment lists that provides the setting. Um, but if it were like Andrew said, like an expansion I'm marking on for it is is detailing some of the world realms, not new rules. The rules are in the book. Um, and you don't need anything else to play because the system's there. But uh, I think that's exactly correct, what Andrew is saying, is it depends on the structure and size of your book and audience, your expectations. I think that the um, only book I ever hate that is never separate in a lot of um, more less popular games and then games like the uh, Once Final uh, Fantasy Flight puts out would be a lack of a bestiary, like a standalone bestiary, I find is so important to a good long-running game, and just the number of games that just lack a standalone bestiary is just mind-boggling. Yeah, and we will eventually be doing a standalone bestiary for eighteen seventy-nine. Uh, we included a bestiary chapter in the GM's guide so that you had some stuff to start out with. Um, and so that it was, the book is a bit more inclusive. 
Uh, Earth Dawn has done a, a couple of bestiary books, uh, and you know, long ago Shadowrun, we did uh, Paranormal Animals of North America and a bunch of other stuff. I have a I have a couple monsters, <clears throat> like a like a baseline set that will allow DMs to run games. But since it's a D twenty game, kind of the expectation is is that you'll uh, you'll get, I mean like I've I've been playing for thirty years. I think I have every monster manual I need. Like, because most of the time I don't even use them during the game. I think about the roles or the setting or the design of the monster and what it's supposed to do. And it, like the specifics of the armor class, it's, I can't come up with that on my own. You know, it's the idea that they're useful for. Mm-hmm. So for us, um, we've actually, we're currently actually uh, running two separate books in our beta. And uh, we've debated this same um, this this back and forth, and we've asked folks here, we've asked other people, other players, um, and kind of the conclusion that we've arrived at right now is we've kept our player book uh, separate from a game master's book at this point because we have a lot of material in the game master's book that is uh, content for starting game masters to give them something to launch from. And on the one hand, you know, you could include it, and eventually the players will be probably become familiar with it. Um, it does sort of give them, you know, like I said, for starting, it gives you uh, a separate point of reference so that, you know, the player, if they really wanted it, sure, they could go out and get that book, but they don't need that. And that also uh, helps to have um, lower the entry price point um, because if you say, well, I've got a smaller book, now, in our case, it's digital, but we, you know, we could say, okay, well, this, you know, you'd spend less um, on one book um, that might be uh, not inclusive of everything that, that has all the Game Master rule. Um, so that's something, you know, like I said, we have a lot of content in there that's geared towards getting the Game Master started. Uh, we started with a bestiary in there. Uh, it's not a large bestiary. Um, but it's something, you know, I think we've got, uh, just under 60, um, various, uh, monsters and creatures as, you know, a, a basic set, um, to get us started and, and to use, uh, during the, the launch and testing so that we can add a, a bestiary later. Um, and we've also got things like, um, uh, uh, world setting. Um, so we have a lot of the basic world setting stuff and we put the framework for that and say that we're going to be releasing, um, campaign supplements in the setting areas that are defined, but the areas that are off here to the shoulder, we're not. And so there's blank areas on the map where we're going to say, you can create your own, but then we'll add other supplements. And that's kind of how we plan to divvy up, um, what it is that we're doing. Um, so part of it was just sort of that decision to, break apart things that might only be relevant to players and give them a lower price point entry into the game. It sounds like a pretty good uh, approach to it. Certainly. Like uh, you're having enough base, but also adding more later on. I always like additional book. Not only does it allow you to support a system that you like, but it gives you more to play with, which is never a bad thing. Uh, I got a question for Andrew. You mentioned earlier you go to a lot of conventions. What are some upcoming ones you'll be at if people want to say hey? Well, the next one I'll be at will be Gen Con. Um, where 
I'm having to kind of lay low right now um, because of a, a number of things. But, uh, you know, the next one I'll be at will be Gen Con. I'll be there running uh, demos of 1879. Uh, I'll be at the uh, FASA booth in the dealer hall and generally kind of hanging around. If you come up to me and say, hey, I heard you on Discord, I will give you an actual medal. We had uh, the medals from the covers of the books struck, and I carry a few of them with me. So, yeah. Uh, previously, um, I've been doing a bunch of the steampunk circuit, uh, going to the steampunk symposium in Cincinnati and to uh, a number of others. But, uh, yeah, right now my schedule has had to be thinned out. And those of you who were on the channel before the show began know what all that's about. <laughs> Wow, so you're going to Gen Con? Uh, yeah, um, I've been to Gen Con for the last five, six years. Um, FASA Games, you know, uh, the people who do Earth Dawn, uh, people who created Shadowrun and Battletech. Um, yeah, we have a booth in the exhibitor hall, and we do demos, and yeah, we're there as, as a company. That's actually, uh, that's pretty incredible. I mean, I, I, I don't know what the Gen Con experience is like these days, but, you know, just being able to say that, that you're doing that is, uh, you know, pretty cool. It's gotten kind of intense. Um, you know, with 120 20, uh, some odd thousand people attending, it... Uh, it gets a little hectic. So, like, people rolling around in the mud, badass. Uh, it's kind of, I don't know, Vivi, you're, you're in New York. You've ridden the subway, right? Definitely have. Okay, so yes, imagine, imagine the entire convention is the two-line during rush hour. Wow. Yeah, that's the gen, what the Gen Con experience is like at this point. It's it's pretty pretty intense. Um, it gets kind of kind of like Bangalore after a, after a couple of days. Um, the city really does do their best to to clean up. But a lot of the gamers are just incredible slobs. You know, there's just no excuse for it. And the city just can't empty the trash cans quick enough. Oh, <laughs> uh, kind of, I don't know. I mean, what's the, what do you see as the benefit of going? Biggest benefit is meeting a lot of, new, of people uh, and getting the games in front of them. Uh, the main reason that FASA goes to Gen Con is exposure, exactly. It's, it, we are there to run demos, to put our games in front of people. The best way to sell a game 
is to uh, is to get people to play it. And so, so we're there. We're we're there to to sell our games by by running demos. Do you ever run games over at the Complete Strategist down in uh, downtown in New York? I have tried uh, to get in with them, and I don't get calls back. Um, I've tried with them and with the 20-sided store over in Brooklyn, and neither of them re uh, ever returns my messages. So uh, I've had good luck walking in and talking to them. I did. And what happened? Uh, went in and, uh, talked with the, the guy at complete strategist and gave him some, some materials, you know, you know, here, here are posters. Here's the quick starts for our games. You know, here's, here's my business card. And he said, yeah, let me get back to you on that. Hmm. Wow, that's strange. I wonder why. I, my experience with them was was pretty positive, so maybe it was just a timing thing. Maybe it's also the fact that we're just not as big a name as we used to be. Uh, you know, FASA's stuff isn't moving product the way, say, Pathfinder or Fit or Five E. Our, our moving product. Uh, nobody is anymore. <laughs> I mean, you yeah. can't really compare to that anymore. No kidding. But yeah. So, yeah. Well, I've uh, got actually at a local game shop here, um, a guy in Frisco, uh, Docs Comics and Games in Frisco, uh -huh. Texas. Um, he's invited me to come back for free RPG day again this year. And uh, we'll be running, hopefully, Swords and Shaman there. Um, we're still hashing that out, but this will be my second year to come back there to do that. I can recommend Dragon's Lair in San Antonio, Texas. Um, I lived in San Antonio for a couple of years for a job, and um, Dragon's Lair has six gaming rooms. I was running uh, stuff there every other week for like a year, uh, found them to be really great people, uh, very easy to get onto their schedule, to get a room, to be able to, to run stuff. So had really good luck there. You know, I don't know what's with the, the stuff in New York. Well, Texas is really big. So me getting to San Antonio is going to be very frequent. Yeah, yeah, I understand how, how large Texas is. I lived in Dallas for a year and San Antonio for a couple of years. And yeah, I, I understand the distance issue. But I figured I better give a shout out to one of the good ga uh, game stores since I'm grouching Absolutely. about another one. Absolutely, man. So I... I actually was really curious, you know, when you talked about getting exposure um, at Gen Con, um, you know, that's the kind of thing that we would look at over here and say, we just can't, we can't justify it. And I don't know if that's a mistake, you know, because we don't have that kind of, uh, visibility that FASA already does. Um, do you have to reach a certain point before that becomes, you know, viable or? 
Yeah, I'd be curious about that too, like the cost-benefit ratio. Like how much do you have to spend on Gen Con to make it worthwhile? And how much infrastructure do you really need before you even go there in order to make it worthwhile? You've got to have enough books to fill a booth. Um, I mean, that's really critical. We go there and we get um, two booth spaces. We're going in with Studio Two. So we're down at one end of the Studio Two space and we take up uh, two of the, uh, spa- uh, their, of the spaces in their territory. We set up our own stuff in those spaces uh, and we have enough product to fill our tables and have a um, rack of minis and so forth. Um, if you don't have enough product to fill the space, I wouldn't even bother going. It's going to look really sketchy, and uh, people aren't going to come into a booth that isn't well stocked. And I'll try. As, as far as, as go I'm sorry, good. As far as what we spend, um, we sell some books. We sell a lot of stuff at Gen Con. We sell a lot of books. We sell a lot of minis. We do not uh, even break even on Gen Con. It's it is a marketing effort. It, you know, it, it's part of our it's it's our big advertising budget for the year. The big deal about it is raising awareness, getting people playing the games. We have knock-on effects from Gen Con generally for about three months. It takes about three months for the surge on our web store to die down after Gen Con. That's interesting that you can draw a direct correlation in the surge of sales with it. Any, any product, especially, that we introduce at Gen Con, if we bring a new book to Gen Con, we will sell a bunch of that book, and then we will see big sales of that book for the next three months. If we release the book uh, any other time of the year, we do not get as big a surge. And one of the main benefits about doing the con circuits is you're going to get a connection with somebody who's not going to just buy that book right then and there. He's going to buy your next 15 books and that pays for itself a lot. And in Andrew's right, you're not going to make a whole lot of money at the convention itself, but it's those repeat customers that are going to stay with you and stick with you. That's what, that's what's valuable. It's also about networking with the fan groups. Um, we've got a fan group that came to us, uh, three years ago and said, we've really gotten interested in 1879. We'd like to run 1879, run our own event for 1879. What kind of support can you give us? Um, I gave them a fully packaged, uh, scenario with all the character sheets pre-printed and everything all set up in a binder, ready to run. I gave them posters and swag to hand out to the players. And when they came back with the registration, with the, with the tickets, showing that they had run like four sessions of this thing, uh, the guy who ran it, I gave him a copy of the player's guide. They have been running 1879 every year since then. 
And this year, they've got two GMs running the system instead of one. So they have actually expanded the number of, event of events that they are running. That is the kind of promotion that you simply cannot buy. When you've got people who are enthusiastic enough about your system that they want to run it themselves at the big show. That, that, that kind of networking is priceless. Do you guys uh, the from FASA run any games at Gen Con? Oh, absolutely. I will be, if I'm not at, attending a panel or working in the booth, I will be running a demo the entire convention. Um, I, 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 I deliberately book myself solid for the whole convention. I'm working my butt off the whole time. And I've got another guy, uh, my rules mechanic, who, who will be similarly running, a, uh, running the same demo um, uh, for four days straight. <clears throat> oh, awesome. The scenario this year, by the way, um, is called Worm in the Big Apple. It is set in New York in 1881. Uh, the... The dragon that lives up by Central Park loaned a valuable object to a museum for a special show, and somebody actually had the brass ones to steal it. You've been called on to find this object and get it back to Mr. Park before he goes looking for it himself. Actually, this raises a totally tangential question for you. Do you guys have... Um... Like any rights to use characters from Shadowrun for eighteen seventy nine? Because I know that some characters would still be alive, if not in hiding. Or we are not using characters from Shadowrun, but we are using characters from Earthdawn. Oh, so there, there's at least continuity from uh, back to forward. There is very definitely continuity from Earthdawn to eighteen seventy nine. Um, I will give you this: uh, the GM's companion for 1879 is having the last two chapters finished right now. It will in uh, one of the chapters on dragons is already done. And one of the dragons that is showing up in 1879 in that book is one you will recognize from earth dawn. I'm not going to tell you which one, but one of the earth dawn dragons shows up under the same name in 1879. Oh, that's awesome. Of course, of he's course. up to no good. <laughs> of course. I mean, that's given. All right. Given last call for questions. If I missed yours, please retype it quickly or ask it. All right, I don't see anybody typing, so I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Coast to Coast. Fantastic. Thank you Great. so much for having us on and letting us spout off. Thank you, sir. Yep, a lot of fun. Nice to chat with all you guys.